chapter 11, or if you have the notes there, the passages we're going to be looking at are in front of you. And they may even appear behind me. I'm not sure. But uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, we've been looking at this great chapter on the testimony of faith. And while we've read often during this series uh, these select verses on faith, I want to read them again as we pick up our study uh, of the chapter at the next example of faith. So I'm going to begin reading with verses 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And now I'm dropping down to verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him that is God, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And now, all the way down to verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The story of Rahab is a familiar one to many. But I think it's important that we review it. So we're going to move now from Hebrews chapter 11 to Joshua chapter 2. And I'm going to read Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 24. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Zion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. 
A sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window. For her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, where the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she, went, then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now we go to chapter 6 of Joshua, and verses 20 through 25, where we have the result of all this. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. John Brown, commenting on all this, says, As a reward for this important service, when all the inhabitants of Jericho were put to the sword, Rahab and her family were preserved alive and obtained a place among the peculiar people of God. Rahab marrying Salmon, the prince of Judah, and thus becoming one of the ancestors of the Messiah.
Now, as is often the case, the significance of this record, according to Hebrews, gets lost sometimes in the debate about alternate matters. This doesn't mean that we deny the fact that it raises some important questions that have to be answered in the context of Scripture, um, exactly how Rahab responds and what she says to those who interrogate her. All that needs to be considered. But those issues should not take prominence and such prominence that the broad and beautiful lesson about faith here is obscured by the debate over those issues. And exactly what is that lesson about faith? Well, it is this, that any sinner, any sinner, can find salvation by faith at the hand of God. Even a Gentile, even one among a people who have been condemned by God, even one who plies the trade of prostitution. Calvin says, he now teaches, that is God now teaches, that an alien woman, not only of a humble condition among her own people, but also a harlot, had been adopted into the body of the church through faith. Rahab became a follower and a worshiper of the Lord God Jehovah, the one true and the living God. And with that, a woman who hoped in the work of the coming Messiah. And that displays, says John Brown, beautifully the sovereign nature of God's saving grace as well as the power of the truth to lift up and to sanctify sinners. And that's the story here. That's where the emphasis is here. Whether we're looking at it in the book of Joshua or whether we're looking at it as it's referred to in James or here in Hebrews. Rahab was by nature a Gentile an alien from the stock and covenant of Abraham. Wherefore, as her conversion unto God was an act of free grace and mercy in a peculiar manner, says John Owen, so it was a type and pledge of a calling, a church from among the Gentiles, of of the calling of the church from among the Gentiles. She was not only a Gentile, but an Amorite of that race and seed which in general was devoted to utter unto utter destruction. Now, one of the aspects of this study that might strike you as odd is the fact that her sinful employment is mentioned frequently during the story. Her name is hardly spoken without that sinful employment being referenced. And just in case you didn't get it, it's mentioned again in the book of James and in the book of Hebrews. And when her name appears there, it's with that sinful employment attached to it. Though her behavior as a prostitute is clearly condemned in the law and the prophets, and it is obviously identified as a sinful practice in the New Testament, what we see is that she still found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Often when telling her story, there's an emphasis placed on the manifestation of her faith rather than the nature of her faith. And that we understand, but 
and it's common. We concentrate on the resulting action produced by our faith. But as we look at this 11th chapter of Hebrews, all the resulting actions of the faith that those heroes had are notable. They all are. And that's why they're listed here to begin with. But they're here in these various manifestations because they are the display, you might say, of one consistent thing. No matter what any of these heroes did, it is a display of one consistent thing. Their faith in God and his word. What you're reading here are all the various and marvelous things that faith enabled different people to do. From patriarchs to prostitutes, from groups of people to individuals, both men and women. And the common denominator in it all is their faith. Faith is the point. Faith is the emphasis. It's the thing that's said before. Yes, they did marvelous things and they're wonderful to think about. If we just keep it in this context, the falling of the walls of Jericho and the saving of Rahab alive, those are wonderful things, but they are the result of faith. Faith is at the heart of it all. It has nothing to do with the greatness of the individual or the magnificence of the people, but the will of God in regard to them by faith. Calvin says, It hence follows that those who are most exalted are of no account before God unless they have faith. And that faith, on the other hand, those who are hardly allowed a place among the profane and the reprobate are by faith introduced into the company of angels. So you have the great and the mighty, like Abraham and Moses, and we see it's faith that made them great and mighty. And then we have someone like Rahab who is lifted up from the lowest of positions, and it's faith that lifts her up. And requires just a little adjustment in our focus here to keep things clear. It's not, look at what Abraham did, or look at what Moses did. It's this, look at what the faith described in the opening of this chapter enabled them all to do. You see the difference? It's a subtle one. But it's not, look at Moses and look what Moses did, or look at Rahab and look at Rahab did. It's not that. It's look at what faith enabled them all to do. Men and women, many or few, great or insignificant or even despised. That's the message here. Now, if we take the definition of faith given to us in this chapter, we can trace the evidence in the actions and the words of Rahab of that faith. So the Lord tells us first in this definition of faith, first of all, back in uh, the beginning of the chapter, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Rahab's hope was that the God who had delivered Israel would deliver her. That's her hope, that the God who had delivered Israel would deliver her. And that this mercy would extend not only to her, 
but to her whole family. Do you notice the boldness of her plea here? It's to these two spies. Now, look, I want you to swear, not just to keep me alive, but my mother and my father and my brothers and my sisters and anybody else in my family, I can get in here. <laughs> and they, get, they extend that promise. They say, if that's, yes, we agree to that. You bring them into the house and they will be secure. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 10, Rahab says this, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Zion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Now on the basis of that, she says this in verse 12, Now then, having heard that, knowing that that's what's happened, please swear to me by that Lord, that same God, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with me and my father's house and give me a sure sign that that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The conviction that she had about this promise being kept to her rested in the things that she had seen and believed, or had, excuse me, had not seen, but heard about and believed. Calvin says she professed her full persuasion of what God had promised to the Israelites and of those whom fear kept from entering the land. She asked pardon for herself and her friends as though they were already conquerors. And in all this, she did not consider men, but God himself. She didn't see the Red Sea crossing. She wasn't a witness of that. And you remember, that was 40 years ago. But Rahab knows about it. She knows what God did for these people in delivering them. She wasn't a witness to the Amorite victory more recently. She wasn't a witness. She didn't see that happen. But she was convinced that the God who had done those things for Israel was going to prevail against her own fortified city and give it to his people and give them all that he had promised, including Jericho. She hadn't seen the sovereign hand of God firsthand, but she believed in it. And she made them swear by that name that they would protect her, believing that that was enough to keep them all safe. If you'll promise this in the name of that God, then I know that myself and my mother and my father and my brothers and my sisters and all that belong to them will be safe. If you swear in that name, because this is a God who fulfills all his holy will. So how does that apply to her? In this way, if you swear to me in his name, you better do it. You better do what you swear, because this is the God who parts the Red Sea and destroys his enemies. And if you swear in his name and then don't keep what you've sworn, that God who keeps his word will seek vengeance on you. That's the way she's viewing this. And that's the way she's trusting This fear that we read of developing in Jericho itself was the fulfillment of God's word 
and his promise to his people back at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 23 and verse 27, the Lord says to Israel, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And that's what's happening here in Jericho. The, the fear of the Lord has gone before the people. And, and they're in dread. Rahab says the hearts of the people have melted before you. And this promise was ratified again 40 years later when they came out of the wilderness and were ready to go into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 25, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. And that was Rahab. But she did it with faith. John Brown says, Had Rahab not heard these things in reference to Jehovah as the God of Israel, or had she, like many of her countrymen, heard but not believed them, she could not have acted as she did. But having heard and believed them, she could but as act as she did. Now, the next portion of the definition says this, and this is Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, this was vital in Rahab's situation. Jericho was the cultic center for the worship of the God of the moon. How much Rahab may have had to do with that worship Um, We don't know because prostitution was often a part of that kind of cult worship. But she certainly rejects any hope, any trust, any confidence in that local deity and turns to Jehovah. When we read these words in Hebrews 11.6, it's important to remember, as we've said before, that to believe that God exists or that God is implies much more than simply believing that there is a God. I um, saw a statistic again this week, um, and statistics are, are what they are, but uh, 80% of Americans believe there is a God. But 80% don't believe that God is. Because there's a tremendous difference between those two things. Believing that God is is not the same as believing that there is a God. Believing that God exists or that he is implies it involves being assured that he is all that he says he is and all that he promises to be and all that is necessary for him to be known as the true and the living God. It's something more than just believing that there's a God out there. It's believing that he's everything he says he is. It's everything that he should be is God. That's everything he promises he is. First, to come to God is to approach him in any way associated with worship. Whether we're talking about prayer or adoration or service. So those who believe that he is and come to God do so with a worshipful heart. That's, the, that's what coming to God is, coming in worship. Secondly, it's an act of faith. 
And as such, Goose says, it must therefore more distinctly be taken, namely that he is the true God, the only true God, such a God as he has revealed himself to be. Thirdly, this is essential to believing that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. It's beloved by the employment of all his attributes that one believes in his will and ability to reward those who genuinely seek him. If I come to somebody and I say, I need your help, and I don't have any confidence about their ability to help me, my appeal is sort of a forlorn, lost appeal. But if I come to someone and I believe that they're actually able to do what they promise, then that, in that way I'm expressing my faith and I'm putting my confidence in them. And that's the way it is here with God, to believe that he is able to reward. He's able to reward because of his wisdom, because of his power, because of his might. It's by his wisdom and his knowledge that he judges the true nature, even of my approach. That I'm earnest and honest in my approach to him. It's by his grace and mercy that he accepts my prayer. It's by his justice and goodness that he keeps faith with me. And it's by his power and his might that he delivers what is promised, no matter what the circumstances may be. So when we look at it in the context of this, Rahab could have followed other courses to try and gain her life. She might have attempted to apply her trade with the two spies in order to, in exchange for her life. She might have betrayed their presence to the authorities in the hopes of some kind of special protection from them. She might have relied on the local pagan deity, the moon god, or her own cleverness. But she rejected all of that and she looked to God as God. And as far as we can tell from Scripture, Rahab didn't have some direct revelation It wasn't as if the Lord came to her and said, I am the Lord your God and you put your trust in me and I'll make sure you're safe. It wasn't that. She had the witness of the reality of who God is. Rahab really was listening to what we read elsewhere in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 where we're told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. She's already had this witness of who God is, the true God is to her. And she sees this God as that God. And in this case, it was even more direct. She had heard of the promises that God had made to Israel, and she had credible evidence that he was fulfilling those promises. And that resulted in a firm belief in him by her. She was fully persuaded that he was God. Simply stated, as John Brown puts it, Had she not believed, she would not have been delivered. Had she remained an unbeliever, she must have perished among the unbelievers. But she believed. And it's obvious that she came to this conviction 
interestingly, before the spies arrived. She was already of this mind when they got there. And she is now appealing to them on the basis of what she already believes, a prostitute living in the walls of the pagan city of Jericho. What she believed concerning the true and living God. Now what can we apply to ourselves in this context? Well, first of all, Rahab's story of both the need for and the sufficiency of faith and the first century Jewish Christian believers, the connection between them is an important one. You have to remember that as we're looking at Hebrews, we're we're hearing uh, the writer of Hebrews talking to first century Christian believers who are Jewish. And Rahab is a wonderful example to them. And you think, well, how can this Gentile, (laughs) uh, this woman of the Amorites, be a good example to Christian Jews? Uh, How can that be to, to Jewish people? And the answer is that because they are Christians now, they had to serve God's kingdom first, just like Rahab had to do. And that put them at odds with their own people and with the popular culture of the day. So Rahab had to say, yes, I'm an Amorite and I'm in this family, but I believe this is the true and living God and I'm going to risk the malice of my own culture in order to identify myself with the living God. And when you come all the way forward now to the first century, when Jews are coming to Christ, it's the same thing. They're saying, we're Jews by birth and nature, but now we see that the true Jew is the one who is a follower of Christ, and so I have to turn from my culture, I have to turn from my history, and step out of that and risk the malice of that culture to identify with the true and living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, that's exactly what you must do. This is our job, our calling. We are a part of a country. We're a part of a culture. But we have to stand aside from that culture as it moves away from us to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it means incurring the malice of that culture. And Rahab is our example. We're going to gather our whole household in under the blood of Christ. And we're going to ask for the Lord's protection. And we're going to stand with the true and living God, even if it means the whole world is against us. Rahab had the faith to believe that if she put her trust in the Lord, he would deliver her and her family. And that's what we believe, that if we put our trust in the living God, we will be delivered, man, woman, father, mother, child, and all who are ours. Secondly, 
the path of most danger is often the only way of real safety. Of all the options, from a human standpoint, that Rahab has here, identifying with these two men who have come from Egypt, uh, from among the Jews, is probably the last one that you would think of following. How are these two men, I mean, look, they're hiding in the city, right? It's not like these two men could march into the city and say, hi, we're Israelites and we're conquering you all and we're going to overtake you. And she says, oh yeah, I'm with them. It's two men who come cowering into her home and say, can you hide us? And she says, yes, I'll identify with you. The path of most danger is often the way of most safety. The course she took was from a human standpoint, beloved, a dangerous one. And it could lead to her losing everything, including her life. And it was the same way for those who first read this epistle. We're identifying with Christ. At one time, Jews who identified with Christ had a problem with this man named Saul of Tarsus. Did you ever hear of him? Persecutor of Jewish Christians who consented to their death, who put them in prison, who broke up families. Now, that was over by this time, of course, but they're still under the same pressure at this time, not from Saul, but from others like him at this point. And these first century Christians are being asked to identify with Christ even at the hazard of their lives and their, good, and their, and their goods, their livelihoods. And Rahab is an example to them of it. She becomes a princess in Israel because she identifies with Christ. But right now, these are dangerous times for her. These are dangerous times for you and me in some regards. But if we identify with the Lord, the most dangerous way is the safest way. Thirdly, real faith often limits our actions or directs our actions. If Rahab really believed, what were her options here? The only thing she could do was identify with Israel. If she really believed. Otherwise she knew it was going to happen. And if they, the first century believers like her, really believed, then there was only one option. And it's the same way for you and me, beloved. In Romans chapter 2 and verses 6 to 8, Paul says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And fourthly, faith and nothing but faith can enable persons cheerfully to make such sacrifices, to expose themselves to such dangers, says John Brown. All the powers in this world, beloved, seem to rest with men. But if we believe that they could have, as Jesus says, no power at all except what is given them from above, 
then we know where our loyalty and our safety comes from. It is in being identified with the one true and living God through Jesus Christ. And lastly, and most importantly, consider once more what a wonderful story this is of God's grace. This story is here, among other reasons, to provoke the worst to repentance and to belief. That's what Guj says about it, and it's true. It's just to provoke men and women and children who feel they're the worst to repent and to believe. If you won't be swayed by the saving faith of good men and women or of weak men and women or of multitudes or individuals who have found grace in the eyes of the Lord, won't you be swayed by this woman's testimony? There is nothing that she can offer but her hope and trust in the goodness and the mercy of God. That's all she has here. Without that, she knows she will die and die in her sins. But her trust and faith is in that goodness, that mercy, and that love of God. And the call of the gospel is for us to put our trust in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, which is the emblem of his love and mercy. The table before us this morning in which we remember his death, this is the emblem of God's love and mercy towards you and towards me. And it calls for us to put our faith and our trust in him and in that goodness and that mercy, to reject the world, to reject the things of the world, and to put our trust and our confidence in Christ alone. And no one, by virtue of his or her sin, is necessarily outside of that hope, by that sin. Because look at Rahab. She ends up being a princess. And you notice when her name is mentioned throughout Scripture, it doesn't say Rahab the princess. It says Rahab the prostitute. To remind us that she found mercy in the Lord despite her sin, found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and was lifted up by that mercy and made a part of the hope in the kingdom of God, even finds her place in the line of the Messiah. What goodness, what grace from the hand of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless us now as we consider the testimony and witness of the faith of Rahab. Lord, we know that we have our own calling in this time, in this age, to stand with you. And we pray, Lord, that we would look upon her as an example to us of faith. May we be humble enough. May we be humble enough to look on this woman and say, Here's an example of the kind of faith I ought to have in the Lord. The kind of trust and confidence I ought to have in the goodness and the love and the mercy and the word of God. And Father, as we do, may we be faithful to you in thought and word and deed. 
Father, take our stand for the truth. Bless us now as we move to this table, which reminds us of that sacrifice that was made for all who believe, the refuge for sinners of every kind, of every time, of every type, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.